After about five minutes of conversation in the alleyway in between puffs on his purple glowing vape pod, the young man asked the question we often hear, what church do you guys go to? And I said, No Hope Bible Church. And I answered, knowing he would likely want more information than that. He says, well, what do you guys believe? And often we will say something like, well, we believe that Jesus Christ is God's son. That he died on the cross in payment for our sin. And that three days later, he was raised from the dead by the power of God. And then we often, will add, and like our name says, we really desire to live by and believe in the Bible, the Word of God. So why? Why do we mention Bible? In many places right now, it's seen as a religious book with some bizarre old stories and lots of rulers, or lot, excuse me, lots of rules, written by several religious men in old languages that nobody speaks anymore. Many people believe it's been translated over and over and over again so that it's lost its original meaning. Why is Scripture, why is the Bible so important though that 20 years ago when this church first began, the word Bible, the word Bible was the one word that everyone agreed should be a part of the new church name. In the next several minutes, I hope to answer four questions about the Bible. There are certainly far, far more questions and claims that could be uncovered in these three verses about God's Word. But this morning, this is what we're going to pursue. First question is, what unique power does Scripture claim to have? Secondly, does the Bible have the right to make such a claim? Thirdly, uh, what practical use is God's Word? And fourthly, what can God's Word do in your life? Now as I preach at times I will use the terms God's Word and Scripture as synonyms for the Bible. Meaning the same thing whenever I use them. But first of all, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin to study. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. King of kings and Lord of lords, the most high God who alone has immortality, dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To you be honor and everlasting power. Father, we ask that you would fill us this morning with your spirit, that you would enlighten us, that you illumine these scriptures to us, that we would understand and see you deeper than we have before. Lord, you know the limitations of of mine, you know the limitations of concentration and weaknesses that we have and distractions. Lord, we ask that you would give us victory, that you would give us a, a resolute focus on Jesus Christ. Lord, please bless us this morning as we seek you, and may your word mean more to us than it ever has before. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What unique power does Scripture claim? Verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The holy scriptures claim that they are able to make, it's the word dunamahi, it means ability and strength to make one wise for salvation. Another way to say this is that scripture has the unique power 
to give wisdom that can actually save a man for eternity. The written word of God provides the who, what, and how needed for anyone to be rescued from sin's control of their life, from God's righteous condemning judgment of our sin, and from eternal death that sin earns for every man and woman who does not follow the rescue plan God gives in his word. If this is so, how can you be rescued? Exposure to Holy Scripture. Timothy, it says, you have known from childhood. Childhood here can be translated as infancy. And in fact, in some places in Scripture, it's actually a preborn child. What the point that Paul is making here is that Timothy was raised on a steady diet of the Old Testament Scriptures, which were the only ones available at his time. By Jewish custom, children like Timothy began learning from the Old Testament law and prophets at the tender age of five. Last week I explained that the primary method of teaching children was twofold. First of all, children were to memorize Scripture. Parents would go over and over and over again the Word of God to help them memorize, to have it deep in their mind and heart. Secondly was the practice of catechism. And essentially that is a question and answer of biblical principles. Children would study and memorize clear and specific biblical answers to questions that range from who is God, what is life, sin, salvation, prayer, etc. A whole plethora of questions about who is God and how you can know him. But they would know these very distinctly, very clearly. And because of his early training in God's word, Timothy was able to affirm what the psalmist said in chapter 71, verse 17. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now, such a blessed upbringing has not happened to very many of us here, or anywhere else for that matter. Most of us were not raised with scripture memorization and catechism from childhood like Timothy was. But whether you are young or old, in order to come to saving faith, you must somehow be exposed to God's word. God has established that an exposure to his word is a necessity to experience wisdom from Holy Scripture for salvation. Even though Timothy had only the Old Testament to study, salvation was there. More than 1,500 years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, Moses wrote about Abraham's faith and his righteousness in Genesis 15, verse 6. Moses wrote, And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to Abraham for righteousness. Paul explains the same salvation promise in the Old Testament by quoting another man of the Old Testament, King David. Paul starts off in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, and he says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David from Psalms 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
Old Testament saints like Abraham, Moses, Lot, Rahab, David, Daniel, Ruth, Joseph, all looked ahead with faith that God would provide a way of forgiveness for their sin. Jesus pointedly rebukes the Pharisees, experts of the scriptures at that time, because they rejected its clear message of him. He said to these men, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, the Old Testament, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Scripture, both Old and New Testament, has power to make a person wise for salvation. But it must come through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus. He is salvation's Savior. He is deliverance's deliverer. He is the rescuer. He is the one. Old Testament and Scripture prophesied of this Savior many times for many centuries before he ever walked this earth as the God-man Christ. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. This child that will be born would be God in the flesh with us, as John 1 verse 14 says. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Zechariah 12 10, the prophet said, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a, over a firstborn. A brutal prophecy, brutal prophecy is contained in Isaiah chapter 53. It describes the torment, the anguish and death of one who would suffer in the place of God's elect children. It reads there in chapter 53 verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 700 years later, 
that suffering one would walk on earth as Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ not only told the Pharisees they should have known him by his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, he had some strong words for his very own disciples. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, beginning with verse 36. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I, I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their mind, their understanding, that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus spelled it out through the Old Testament law and prophets, who he was, that he would come, and that his fulfillment validated that he was a son of God. Paul follows suit with Jesus, tying the Old Testament law together with faith in Christ. And in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 22, Paul wrote, But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus Faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. The Old Testament law was our tutor for the purpose of bringing us to Christ. That we might be justified, that we might be made right before God by faith. Faith in Christ is required because there is absolutely nothing a mortal man can do to save himself. Why is that, you may ask? Because God accurately identifies all men in the book of Romans as helpless, sinning enemies of God. Man has no capability to rescue himself out of condemnation. Does God himself provide a way out of our hopeless dilemma? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul then brings us to faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The only escape of a hopeless eternity is the one that God has provided in his word of faith in Christ. This faith in Christ is a treasure of greater value than anything in all of life. Many of you have been given faith. Do you consider it to be that? 
the greatest treasure you have ever known. Paul described it this way. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith. Paul had given up everything for that. It is only through faith in Christ that anyone is acceptable to God. Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, be, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance. And here we're talking about the Old Testament saints. God had passed over the sins. That were previously committed. That at the present time. He might demonstrate his righteousness. That he would be just. And the justifier. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. He would be just. He would be judge. He would dictate his decision properly because of his holy righteousness but that could only be possible for any of us to enter into that because not only was he the just judge he was the justifier of all mankind when he was on that cross his death on that cross his suffering his taking upon himself all the filth and stench of our lives of sin was so that he would make us just on that moment The answer to the first question, unique power of Scripture is its ability to make men and women wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture reveals the only saving good news of the gospel. But does the Bible have the right to make such a claim? Does it have that kind of authority? Verse 16 says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. First of all, what do you see there? The scripture is what? It is a gift. It is given by God. It is given on the sole initiative and at the discretion of God. It was not requested by man. It was not earned by man, nor was it obtained by man in any way. The word of God is completely a gift to you and I. Now this gift was given in a most unique manner. Now let me explain, and I want you to think about this. This is a moment we're going to go a little bit deeper into some of the things of, of theology of what the Word of God says. Throughout history, God has communicated with humanity in basically two ways. Through general revelation and special revelation. General revelation. What are its roles, its ability, and its inadequacy? Matt read this morning from Matthew chapter nine, excuse me, from Psalm 
19, verses 1 through 6. Turn to that again, if you would. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. We read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day into day utters speech, and night into night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. And rejoices like a strong man to run its race. It's rising us from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is general revelation. It is God making himself known through nature. And through the moral law which he has placed in our hearts. General revelation reveals so completely God's power and nature to all men everywhere that man has no excuse to ignore or reject him. Do you believe that? This is quite a claim. Let me say that again. General, the general revelation of God reveals so completely God's power and nature to all men everywhere that no man has excuse to ignore or reject him. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And here we will find the basis for this claim. Let's start with Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Here we read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, from faith to faith. As it is written, the just will live by faith. Now verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest, revealed, shown in them. For God himself has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Isaac Newton once wrote, This most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Romans chapter 1 stated, Even the most remote tribes in places like Africa and South America are known to have been endowed with this sense of God. Because of the clear, irrefutable revelation of God in his creation, denial of God is simply man's suppressing the truth by his ungodliness and unrighteousness. There is one reason why scripture declares he is a fool who says there is no God. 
Such a person is not a fool because of ignorance. He is a fool for denying the plain truth that God has shown to him. That is what makes him a fool. But simply knowledge of God is not enough to make a man right before God. The 1689 Confession tells us this, the light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. That is general revelation's inadequacy. General revelation convicts a man of God and sin, but it is powerless to save him. That is why God gave His clear and specific special revelation. General revelation, now special revelation. Special revelation has a role, has an ability, and a sufficiency. If we go to Hebrews chapter 1, it begins declaring, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. He has spoken in these last days beyond what He did with the prophets and the law through His Son, Jesus Christ. God's written word and His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Word become flesh, is God's special revelation. Special revelation is defined by one source as the ultimate form of divine revelation from God to us. For without them, we would know nothing certain about Jesus or any of the divine persons of the Holy Trinity. <clears throat> Jewish leaders confronted Jesus often because of His claim to be God. Jesus rebuked them because of their ignorance of his special revelation of himself in the scriptures which they claimed to know. Again, he said, you search the scriptures, the special revelation, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. They had possession of, but did not believe in, God's special revelation in his written word. And many today are the same. Men still constantly reject the declaration and demands of Scripture about Jesus Christ, about their own eternal condemnation and the need of a Savior. They reject Him. They say so often, I need concrete evidence in order to believe. I will believe it when I see it. I've even had some say, God will need to speak to me directly if I'm going to believe. What a fool such a man turns out to be. God has blessed us with special revelation. His word, which is living and powerful. There is no document that has ever existed that is living and powerful. It changes lives as we already saw. It has the power to give you wisdom to be saved for eternity. Now please stop for a moment and I want you to consider what may be the most hard to accept claim scripture makes to men and women of today. See if you accept it. Let this sink in. Here's the claim. 
The Word of God is more reliable and authoritative than your own personal experience or observation. Do you believe that? The Word of God is more reliable and authoritative than your own personal experience or observation. Here is the biblical support. Peter had seen what may have been quite likely the most glorious sight in the history of man when he, James, and John went with Jesus up on a mountain. There the glory of God in Christ was actually revealed in a way that brought terror and adoration simultaneously to these cowering disciples. They even heard the voice of God the Father speak in praise of His Son Jesus. But listen to what Peter wrote as he compared this mountaintop experience to God's revelation in the written word. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about his time on the mountain. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 19. Here Peter places Scripture, both Old and New Testament, to be an authority above anyone's experience, even, even more authoritative than his own experience, hearing the voice of God and witnessing the glorious transformation of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. How many times do we think in the back of our mind, if I could only see Jesus, if I could only experience this with Him, if I could have seen that transfiguration. And Peter says, I've been there, I've done that, and this is what you count on. That, it's not to dispel that. That certainly had a great impact on his life. But he says, of all that we have, the Scriptures are the more sure voice of God. MacArthur says the prophetic word, Scripture, is more complete, more permanent, and more authoritative than the experience of anyone. More specifically, the Word of God is a more reliable verification of the teachings about the person, atonement, and second coming of Christ than even the genuine first-hand experiences of the apostles themselves. We have something, brothers and sisters, that they didn't have. But, but why does Scripture have such unrivaled authority? The answer is because it is God-breathed. It is given by inspiration of God. Read some of your translations. But the best, the most literal, is God-breathed. That's the word theonestos. This is a completely unique word. It's not unusually unique. Now this word, theonestos, is completely unique. 
It is literally one of a kind. Theonostos is not recorded anywhere in biblical or secular Greek literature prior to Paul writing it here. It seems that Paul created this word to describe something whose origin and existence could not be described by any word known to man at that time. God breathed his word through his chosen tool, man. Now, if God's word had been written across a great snow-covered mountain with a giant magic pen, or if it had been displayed in the vibrant glowing colors across clouds in the sky, we would be discussing the deity of the pen or the magnificence of the clouds. But God chose to give his perfect and complete written word through the mortal creature he made in his own image, man. Again, Peter described it this way. I read this earlier. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Theonostos is not the following. It is not the inspiration of men. Sometimes people will read this and say, these men were greatly inspired. No, they were not. Now, in some sense, you may say that. But what, what does it say was inspired? The Word of God was inspired. The writers of Scripture themselves were fallible men. The Word of God breathed through them was not. It is perfect. Theonostos is not inspiration that was at the disposal of the writers. There was no way that they could turn it on at one time and then turn it off whenever they desired. Many of them would go on to write other good and usable documents. We read about some of those in the book Letters to the Corinthians that Paul had written. But they would not be included as God-breathed inspired scripture. Only those that are in the canon that we have are the God-breathed scriptures. These men, these men, they did not periodically sit there. And if you're wondering, how did that happen? It wasn't as if they went into a trance and sat there as robots and mindlessly wrote out words and sentences that God was telling them to do. No, it was not that at all. And nor was Scripture inspired in the way that we talk about something that was inspiring. Something like a beautiful song or a gripping story or a striking work of art. Something that moves us emotionally or intellectually. That is not the inspiration we're talking about. Hendrickson, with the influence of another man by the name of Bavink, wrote a very good and thorough description of Theonostos. What it means to be God-breathed. And I'm going to read this and the brothers are going to put this up on the screen because it's a little bit lengthy. But it's so clear and there's so much packed in here. I want you to read along as I read. The word, God breathed, occurring only here, indicates that all scripture owes its origin and content to the divine breath, the Spirit of God. The human authors were powerfully guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. As a result, what they wrote is not only without error, but of supreme value for man. It is all that God wanted it to be. It constitutes the infallible rule of faith and practice for mankind. The Spirit, however, did not suppress the personality of the human writer, but he raised it to a higher level of activity. 
And because the individual of the individuality of the human author was not destroyed, we find in the Bible a wide variety of style and language. Inspiration, in other words, is organic, not mechanical. This also implies that it should never be considered apart from those many activities which serve to bring the human author upon the scene of history. This is God's providence at work. But causing him to be born at a certain time and place, bestowing upon him specific endowments, equipping him with a definite kind of education, causing him to undergo, undergo predetermined experiences, and bringing back to his mind certain facts and their implications, the Spirit prepared his human consciousness. Next, that same Spirit moved him to write. And finally, during the process of writing, that same primary author, God, in a thoroughly organic connection with all the preceding activity, suggested to the mind of the human author that language, the very words, and that style, which would be the most appropriate vehicle for the interpretation of the divine ideas for people of every rank and position, age and race. Hence, though every word is truly the word of the human author, it is even more truly the word of God. We see in scripture 66 books. We had over 30 authors written over 1,500 years of time. Three primary languages. We had men who were fig pickers and men who were right-hand men to the king. Of every, of every type of person you can imagine. And yet the Bible is like no other book. With that much diversity, how could it be so united in its purpose and its thought? God was at work. God was breathing through the variety of men that would write out his word for us to be, to be able to keep for eternity. Now, if Scripture is truly breathed out by God, then it must also be perfect and complete in authority. 1 Thessalonians verse, or chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. <clears throat> Hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13 for the word of God is living and powerful sharper than any two edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The scriptures have perfect and complete authority. In just a few words, Paul has established the absolute authority of scripture. It can make claims of authority for salvation because it is breathed out by God. And now Paul will give four specific ways that Timothy is to use this scripture in ministry. They are not only Timothy's ways to use scripture. As I pondered these verses, I realized this is not just Timothy using this way. This is God's way of using His Word in our lives. These four could be explored for hours, but you will be happy to know I'm not going to do that at this time. Let's look at the first few verses, or first part of these four. Verse 16. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, 
for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Doctrine. Doctrine or teaching is communicating knowledge. Timothy was to use scripture to teach others about Jesus Christ and the church. Paul wrote earlier in this letter, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Timothy was taught by scripture, and he would be teaching others about Christ and his church by means of scripture. Scripture that he had received from Paul. Secondly, reproof or rebuking. These are strong words, strong warnings from God's word concerning false teaching, concerning hypocritical living. And as Paul said in 1 Timothy, and any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Strong warnings based on scripture are desperately needed in the church. Thirdly, correction. While reproof emphasizes the negative, correction on the other hand directs a wayward sinner. Correction directs even a straying believer back to the right path using God's word. In 1 Timothy verse, chapter 1 verse 6, we read some people have strayed from sincere faith by turning toward idols. They have gone astray off the path toward idle, fruitless discussion. In 1 Timothy chapter 6.10, others had strayed from faith because of greed and the love of money. Still more have strayed from faith by spending their time in worldly and empty chatter and arguments about so-called knowledge, according to 1 Timothy 6.21. And finally, Paul exposes leaders who had gone off the path, the very leaders of the church. They'd gone off the path of truth as they falsely taught that the resurrection had already taken place. And this destroyed the faith of many. These all needed rebuke and correction from God's word to return to faith in Christ. And the fourth is instruction or training in righteousness. Instruction here can also be discipline. Discipline in righteousness. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. He's not just saying, hang in there, you'll make it through. He's saying, the scriptures will give you hope. Endure, stay with them. Many, many years ago, when our basketball team prepared for the upcoming game, we read and we listened to scouting reports, which gave information about the teams that we were going to face. When possible, we watched videos, and on a couple of rare occasions, we even had an opportunity to attend a game of our opponent that was coming up. At that point, we were gaining information. We were learning about them like, training, like teaching or doctrine. But then, then we would spend hours using that information on the practice court, training and disciplining ourselves on plays, on defenses, on strengthening our weaknesses and bolstering ways we could exploit the opponent's vulnerabilities. Both teaching and training based on correct information was crucial for our success. How much more is the teaching and training of Scripture required for victory in spiritual warfare? There is so much more at stake. Will we allow Scripture to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness? And then Paul tells Timothy, this is the point. What can God's word do in your life?
Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The who and the how here. The man of God. It comes from two Greek words. The anthropos, which means man or mankind. And theos, God. The context of this letter tells us that the man of God is Timothy. The title man of God is only used of Timothy throughout the the whole New Testament. Twice in the letters to Timothy. Paul assures Timothy that the word of God will equip him for everything he is going to face in ministry. Timothy, you stay here and you will be able to handle everything that comes at you. And in a general sense, man of God is used 70 times in the Old Testament for men who spoke on behalf of God. So the title man of God may also be applied to all men who are leading and teaching in the ministry of Christ. All preachers and leaders of God's people must rely on God's word to be equipped for every aspect of God's ministry. I believe it also may be applied in a broader sense. While specifically it was to Timothy and in general to the leaders of the church at that time. It's not only to Timothy or these men, but it is to all believers, any believer who desires to be fully equipped for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people. Young and old, full-time ministry or volunteer layman, teacher or custodian, male and female, should pursue the Word of God in order to be fully equipped for every good work for the glory of Christ. Mothers, fathers, teachers, line workers, farmers, whoever, pursue this Word of God so that you will be fully equipped when God brings these opportunities for good works into your life. God's word prepares us to fulfill the good works written of in Ephesians 2 verse 10. We read there, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's word also cleanses us and sets us apart for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.21 Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Make yourselves ready for every good work. God has prepared them for them. Be be equipped, thoroughly equipped by the word of God. So, that is one of the reasons why the Bible is held with such value and repeatedly taught over and over again in this church. And it is also one of the reasons why this is New Hope Bible Church. I want you to think about a few considerations. I hope that God would lead you to apply His Word in different areas of your life. Only you and He know what is needed there. But I would like you to consider. Parents, just very practically, I'd like you to consider very carefully and prayerfully Uh, Raising your children in the prayer, in the care and admonition of the Lord by the use of the catechism. It seems to have been a way that's been tried and true throughout history. As I mentioned, I I had not implemented that as a father, but I wished I would have. And I I encourage you to give that very strong consideration. There are several types out there. There are uh, families in our church who have practiced that consistently. Secondly, I would like everyone 
if this is God's word breathed out with the power that it claims to commit yourself daily to be in it. Reading it, meditating on it, thinking about it, and memorizing it. Memorize this. Equip yourself. Don't be like the Pharisees who will read it through and maybe memorize it, maybe learn it to a great degree and miss the whole message. When you come to the Word of God to meditate and study, to memorize, plead with God that His Spirit would reveal Himself to you, that He will show Himself in the Word of God. Don't do it to be as a spiritual checklist as we often talk about. Be faithful to it, yes. But yearn to know Christ more through it. And then another uh, very practical thing I I would encourage you to do. Uh, We have some copies of the 1689 Confession in the back. And chapter 1 is all about the Word of God. And I would encourage you to take some time and read that through uh, individually or with your family. It gives a great understanding of the Word of God, its power, its purpose. Much of what we've talked about this morning is in there, but it's one of those resources that we have on hand. Those are just some practical ways to give value and commitment to the Word of God. I hope and I believe you guys will come up with many more as you seek God and desire to grow in Him. Equip yourself for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I love this scripture because it brings my heart and mind back to the foundation. And Father, I pray that we would see your word as it was given, breathed out by God, given to us for every good work that lies ahead so that we would know you, so that we would see your great love, your providence, your sovereignty, your mercy, your grace, your wrath against sin. Lord, feed us and lead us through, the, through your word. Give us, each of us, a hunger and desire for you. In your name I pray, amen.